0: Well, it's good to see you all. Good to be here. Uh, On this, the last of this particular series, the I Believe series, and um, what we're going to be looking at together this evening is I Believe in the Church. I couldn't help thinking uh, when I was typing this uh, title onto the, uh, the slide for the overhead that saying I believe in the church is a bit like saying I believe in milk or I believe in tea or scones or something like that of course I believe in the church I've spent most of my life involved in the church but then that begs many many kinds of questions just like it might do with milk Uh, is it skimmed semi skimmed or full cream or tea do you take it without milk or with milk earl grey fruit tea green tea Indian tea cheese Chinese tea what kind of tea and in regard to coffee well let's not go there I believe in the church, but what do I actually believe about the church? Okay, I've grown up in it, I've joined it, I've been employed by it, but what does it mean to say, I believe in the church? I think it's often the case that when we're really close to something, we tend to think less about it because we take a great deal for granted. And maybe this evening we'll have the opportunity just to think again about what it means to say, I believe in the church. It's very tempting uh, on a topic like this simply to jump straight to the book of Acts or Paul's letters which are clearly full of talk and teaching about the church. But I want to stop uh, at that point really and step back and start thinking a little bit about the big picture um, of where the church fits in. Because it was the big picture that framed the New Testament understanding. Uh, of the church anyway, and the New Testament writers had a very big picture of what God was doing in his world when they talked about the church. So I want to begin at the very beginning. I want to begin in Genesis and simply refer you to those opening chapters of Genesis, not that we're going to read them all, uh, but to highlight a couple of points in them, because one of the main points that stands out in the book of Genesis, in those opening chapters, indeed in the whole of the book of Genesis is the idea that we're dealing with a God who is relational. Someone described the book of Genesis as supremely a book of relationships, highlighting the relationships between God and the creation, God and mankind, and between man and man. But the relationships are not just expressed in abstract or legal terms. The relationships are expressed in terms of fellowship and communication. Or sometimes in terms of loss and encounter. Think of what it says in uh, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Where God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The very language speaks of relationship even within God himself. As we later understand as Father, Son and Spirit. And the whole idea of image and likeness. Speaking of some kind of relationship that is to be established there. And I think of what it says in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 3, the section that talks about um, the fall. And you have this idea of the Lord God calling to the man. Where are you? This expectation of relationship, and that lies at the very heart of the nature of what happened at the fall. This break of the relationship, this hiding from God, and the consequence of that because of sinfulness. And one of the overriding messages of these chapters is one of relationship. And we're dealing, therefore, with the relational God, if I could use that term. Not a God who is abstract and distant. Out there, separated off from the creation that he has made. But a God who is related and interested in relating with his world, his creation, and those who are made in his image. Think also of further on the book of Genesis, for example Genesis chapter 12, and you do on Sunday mornings been doing a series on uh, some parts of Genesis and the whole idea of the call of Abraham and the idea of Abraham's calling marking the beginning of a new set of relationships a relationship that God was going to establish with Abraham and with his descendants and the opening verses of Genesis chapter 12 uh, make that very clear when in verse 2 and verse 3 Um, God says to Abraham I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and this relationship is established with Abraham and the intention of this relationship is that the nations of the world uh, will be blessed in it a whole concept that is reaffirmed in different points throughout the book of Genesis and the Abraham story. So we're dealing with the relational God, and we're dealing with the relational God who works in covenant with his people and calls his people to be a certain kind of people. You know how the story develops, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the story of what happens in Egypt when they're down there, and Joseph... um, is is no longer in control and the way in which the Pharaoh subjects the people to slavery and then we have the calling of Moses and we have the Exodus and when you come to Exodus chapter 19 you have a really very important section there where the people are gathered around to hear the terms if you like the of the covenant that God makes with his people as he calls them again as a people. And he says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These, he says to Moses, are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And this idea of relationship and God building a relationship with a community, with a people, for the good of the peoples of the world, is is everywhere in those opening chapters and opening books of the Old Testament. And while God's engagement with the world is not restricted to Israel, the idea is that this people will be holy, will be marked out, will be separated out for God, in relationship with him for the good of all. And as a nation, they were to function as a kingdom, and as priests of God. They're going to have their own priests within the nation who would act as the mediators between God and the people. But they as a whole nation were called to serve that purpose for the nations of the world. Tragically, they became much more preoccupied with themselves. And while much of the Old Testament records their struggles and their on-off relationship with God, the theme of why they were called This theme of being a kingdom and priests to serve God and serve the nations lies at the heart of this whole idea of God desiring relationship with people and with the world that he has made. If we go right to the very end of the Bible, and to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, we see again the theme of relationship stressed right at the very end of what the scripture has to say. It says in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And down in verse 22 of that chapter, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. A no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And the scripture that opens with this account of the relational God and God building relationships uh, with his people, even in their rebelliousness, uh, develops the whole theme of that relationship and then comes to a close with a vision of what that relationship will look like when it's restored in all its glory. And when there is the exclusion of everything that speaks of how and why the relationship with God was broken in the first place. For verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have at the beginning and the end of scripture this great theme. And then what do we have at the heart of it all? At the very center, as it were, of the whole story, the whole unfolding story. We have, for example, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The whole story of the coming of Jesus in the incarnation. And the proclamation of God's kingdom. God's rule or God's reign. As Mark records in the opening (laughs) verses of his book, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus... In his life, his death and resurrection marks the turning point in the story of God's relationship with his creation and with humankind. And one of the really interesting things is that the outworking of his coming, his death and his resurrection, leads to the formation or re-establishment of a kingdom and priests to serve because you find this theme taken up after uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven throughout the rest of the New Testament and expressed very succinctly in the opening chapter and the opening verses of the book of Revelation where John writing to the church says grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So what's going on here? Well, before Jesus comes among us in the glory of the Incarnation and goes to the cross in our place, God, the relational God, establishes a relationship with a community and a people whom he calls to be a blessing to the nations. Israel are that holy nation, that kingdom of priests on the earth. But because of Jesus, the Christian community, the church, takes up that role as a holy nation, as the scripture says, as a kingdom of priests. The privilege that Israel had is lost because of pride. The role is lost and buried under the weight of selfishness and a sense of a loss of direction. But it is restored again in the people who become the disciples of Jesus Christ with the same calling, the same kind of calling, to be that witness to the world of the relational God who seeks to redeem a people for himself. So when you see it in terms of the big story, from creation to the consummation of all things, when you see it in the context of God's determination to build a relationship with those he had created and those made in his image, you get a sense of how the New Testament writers understand the role of the church. This community of people who follow Jesus Christ as a community of people who are called to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship with God for the good of the world And it's interesting, too, the way in which the Bible speaks of this. It speaks of the idea of the church being a body and a community. And you see them brought together in various passages. For example, in Colossians chapter 1 and in 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the church as the body of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the head of the body, the church. Or in 1 Corinthians, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it, and in the church God has appointed You find it coming in the book of Ephesians as well. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And you'd almost think that the two terms are just there to be used interchangeably. I believe in the church. I believe in the body of Christ. I believe in the church. Same kind of terms. Why don't we just use the one? Well, I think the answer is because the term church itself is a very common term that would have been used in the days of the apostles. Um, The word was ecclesia, from which we get things like ecclesiastical and all the rest of it. And it was a term that was used of the way in which in uh, Greek towns and cities in particular of its era, people would come together. A certain class of the people would come together to make decisions about the politics or the the organisation or whatever of the community. So the term uh, congregation, The term church used in that way was a fairly common term. But this community that are coming together are not just a man-made replica of the way in which people organised themselves in society in those days. This community is ordered differently. It's under new ownership, new leadership and new lordship. And that's why these two terms are constantly brought together a very common term in its own day which people would understand something of the principle of how it was meant to work as this group of people, this community of people met together, decided together but under new lordship, under new rule as the body of Christ as distinct from anything that had been seen before and the bringing together of these two terms is important because they're not just simply interchangeable the concept of the church As the body of Christ also expresses something of the work and purpose of the relational and the redeeming God. Because it talks very clearly of how the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink. The context of this comment is Corinthians. Corinthians. The context of what's happening in the Corinthian church is there's a lot of division and a lot of dispute. People are finding ways of separating themselves out from each other, either because of the people who baptised them, and they say, well, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Peter, or whatever. And there are other differentiations, the haves and the have-nots. So the ones who have plenty and the ones who are rich are able to eat their fill at communion, as it were, and others go without. There are all kinds of divisions. And Paul is saying there is something different here. This is not just like what goes on in society. This is not just a community of people who decide who makes the decisions about life and who is important in the life of this community and who isn't. This is the body of Christ. It's different. It's under new ownership, new rules, new lordship. And it doesn't follow these kinds of divisions. It doesn't follow ethnic divisions and social divisions. And Paul will have none of it. Because the relationship that God builds with people Through Christ in the church is a relationship which is devoid of such distinctions and such favoritism and prejudice. And the church must learn to do that. So the church is not allowed to think of itself simply as an alternative community to the communities around it. It is an alternative community, but not one that they create. It is one that God creates and one under the rule and the governance of Christ. So to say I believe in the church brings together a lot of these different kinds of themes. I believe in the church. I believe in a community called by the relational and redeeming God to be a kingdom and priests, a community, a congregation of people under the rule of Christ without social or ethnic distinction. And that for me would be a kind of summary of some of the things that I would want to say when I say I believe in in the church but obviously there's a lot more we can say about the church and there's three in particular I'd like to say which I think are are quite important one of them is that the church is universal Um, earlier Roy used two different terms about the church, the church militant and the church triumphant we also use terms like this sometimes when we think about the nature of the church the church universal I found this definition of the universal church which I thought was quite useful It is universal in nature, standing greater than any group claiming exclusively to represent it, and above every nation and culture in which it finds its home. Belonging to all ages, it defies the passing of the centuries and embraces within its visible and invisible membership both the living and the dead. Which seems to me to be a very comprehensive way of speaking about the universal church. Greater than any group claiming to exclusively represent it. There is always a tendency that develops because we're human, because we're selfish, to claim exclusive rights to being the church. And the tendency doesn't just lie with any one particular group. I remember many years ago we met some American Baptists who uh, dropped into the church in Urey. Turned out they were landmark Baptists, which basically means they claimed that they had the succession from Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and whoever was baptized following that actually ended up in America and if you weren't baptized into their church you weren't really a Christian so they came to visit us but they couldn't really have fellowship with us because we weren't real Christians because we hadn't been baptized by some of their ministers. So Baptists can believe all kinds of weird things about the church as well. But there is this tendency sometimes to to hold the church as ours or to make some a universal claim about a particular denomination or a particular group. And you can't really do that. It is the Church of Christ, and it is the Church of Christ and those who have faith in Him and who follow Him. So it is greater than any group claiming to exclusively represent it. And it's universal in the sense that it is above every nation and culture in which it finds its home. When the New Testament speaks of the Church, in such all-embracing terms as we've seen in Colossians and Corinthians and Ephesians, it's clear that it's not confined to any one community of people. And also, it belongs to all ages. It is not confined simply to one era. It doesn't simply disappear at some point and reappear again at some point. And it doesn't simply exist or consist of those who are here and alive today. We have this concept that God is building a community... And we see it not simply in terms of what is visible to us today, but we see it in terms of the faithful who have gone before us. And when you read the book of Hebrews and other parts of scripture, like the book of Revelation, it very clearly and unambiguously speaks about the saints who have gone before, the cloud of witnesses who bear witness to how we run the race, those who await the triumph of the church who have gone before us, and particularly the martyrs. So we think about the universal church in all of these different terms. It's, it's got to stretch our minds and to stretch the way in which we think about the church because, like Israel, we can become very possessive and we can become very selfish and see ourselves as, a, as at the center of God's purposes when we are not the only ones. But besides universal, we think of the church as local, and this is a definition. I put together for this evening, probably slightly different from what I would have written many, many years ago. But anyway, a community of Christians who meet together in a local situation, ordering their communal life according to their understanding of the teaching of the Bible, the leading of the Spirit, and the values of their tradition. We believe very much that the expression of the church is in its local expression. That's a concern that's not exclusive to Baptists. Many people will speak in these terms. But what do we mean by it? I believe in the church. The local church is a community of Christians who meet together in a local situation. And the emphasis is on the integrity and sufficiency of a local community to function as a church. So we reject the idea of denominationalism. Or the idea of central and hierarchical authority within the life of the church. Whether that's in terms of presbyteries or popes or cardinals or whatever it might be. Because a local community of believers, wherever they meet in the world, have the competence under the spirit of God to be able to form a church community together. But equally, we don't believe in isolationism. We don't believe it's right that local communities of Christians as they come together simply cut themselves off from their fellow believers. We believe in association and in cooperation. And particularly in Baptist life around the world, you will see that demonstrated. Where churches are autonomous is one term we would use, but not independent in the sense of being cut off from each other. So there are Baptist conventions and unions and all kinds of things around the world where people in their churches associate together and seek to witness together and bear witness together. But there's also this ordering their life according to their understanding of the teachings of the Bible. Because if there's not a hierarchical structure, if there's not a central authority, and if we don't believe that that's what the New Testament is seeking to build, how then do you order your life? And what we believe about the church is that the Bible must be at the center of the life of the church. And the community gathers around Scripture, which is why preaching and Bible study are such an important part of church life. And together, with the enabling of the Spirit, seeks to know the mind of Christ and the will of Christ. Of course, Most Baptist churches stand in the same tradition as the great creeds and the great confessions of faith. But we're not a creedal people or a confessional people in that sense. Because we believe scripture is at the heart and at the center. And we believe in the priesthood of all believers in the sense that we are all responsible to gather around it. And Baptists tend or should tend to be very suspicious of situations where there is simply one voice that declares what the word of God says to the church. That's why it's important in church life and why it's emphasized in the like of this church that we meet together, that we study together, that we debate together, that we discuss together what the scripture says because it's part of what we believe about how the church is and how the church is intended to function. I suppose I've put in there according to our understanding because years ago I would simply have said uh, ordering their communal life according to the teaching of the Bible. But I've learned to be a bit more humble as I've grown a wee bit older and recognise that um, there's a certain amount of me in any understanding of the Bible and a certain amount of you as well, and we need to have the humility to recognise that. But with the leading of the Spirit, God in His mercy and and in His grace enables a community to know those things which are critical and important. But I've also put their ordering their lives under the values of their tradition, which I certainly would never have put years ago, because I would always have believed that tradition was such a despicable thing. And it was only the kind of thing that the Catholics and the Anglicans and all the rest of them had. But the truth of the matter is, we all have traditions, and we all sit and live within traditions. Indeed, the way in which we approach Scripture is very often affected by our traditions. And the kind of tradition that I come out of when I speak in terms of, I believe in the Church is historically what would be known as an Anabaptist tradition a tradition which rejects hierarchy centralised authority the engagement of the state along with the church all of those things that were happening around the time of the reformation and the the, uh, radical reformation as it's often referred to and those things affect the way in which I think about the church we are not traditionless never mind the idea that we establish traditions about how communion should be observed, about the role of preaching, about the role of singing of congregational worship, all kinds of things so a local church a local expression is, is to me the key valid expression of what it means to say I believe in the church here and now, a community of Christians who meet together in a local situation ordering their communal life according to their understanding of the teaching of the Bible, the leading of the Spirit, and the values of their tradition. So the church is universal. It's bigger than any denomination. It's bigger than any country. It's bigger than any organization. It's bigger than simply now. It's all of those things. But it's seen locally. It's expressed locally. That's the proper way to do it. Not hierarchically, not denominationally and all that kind of stuff. But it is also intended to be functional. That's maybe a wee bit obvious, but it's worth thinking about. And I want to think about it briefly in these three ways. Functional in terms of its worship of God, its witness to the world, and the work of the kingdom. I want to turn to a passage in First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4-12. to 12. There are a number of passages in the New Testament you could use to develop this theme, but this one I think is, is quite a useful one. Where Peter says in this passage, writing to Christians who were scattered across um, probably the region of Turkey as we would know it today, uh, and further south as well, from different kinds of backgrounds, he says to them, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to you who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I believe in the church functional. Peter suggests that part of what we are about has God at the focus, at the center Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. It's important this. Because the theme in church life is very often more about doing. And doing in the world and for the world. Which may be an important evangelical emphasis. But if it leaves out our role in terms of our worship of God as a priority. Then it's not biblical. The role of the Old Testament priests was to maintain the sense of the presence of God in the world and among his people. They were the people up front, if you like, in the Old Testament terms, expressing worship to God, giving God his place in their actions, in the tabernacle, in the holy of holies, in the sacrificial system. Their role was not just to help people in their relationship with God or to ease the troubled conscience. Their role was to give glory to God and keep a focus on Him in the midst of a busy and a fallen world. And worship is a key part of the role of the church. And that's one of the things that Peter is establishing. Worship of God for His own sake and His own glory. It is not just something that we do as a prelude to the other things that need to be done. It is to be central And the emphasis for Peter is offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The second part of this is the witness to the world. Declaring the praises of him who called you. Witness comes a close second to worship. In the first phrase, the emphasis is on offering to God. In this phrase, the emphasis is on declaring to the world the glory of the God who called us. To be his witnesses in the world. And declaring, witnessing can take on many forms. And it is part of our priestly responsibility to the world. Because the priests stood between the community and God. They had an important role to play in the ordering and shaping of society they had an important role to play in the education of people about what it means to be sinful what it means to be put right before God and the church has a crucial role to play as the witnesses of God's kingdom and God's glory but also there is this theme of the work of the kingdom that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in Peter's context that covered a number of things It covered the importance of living a moral life in an immoral society. It included an attitude about suffering in a society where they were rejected, being persecuted, and being misrepresented. Peter says the way in which you conduct yourself is part of the work of the kingdom in the world. There were lots of practical actions that needed to be carried out both to the fellow Christian and the unbeliever. And as you read through the whole of Peter's letter, you see that he is reflecting the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Very practical teaching about how it is we are to work in the world as witnesses as we worship God. It's the kind of theme that James picks up in his letter and hammers it home. That faith without deeds is no faith at all. I believe in the church universal. I believe in the church local as the meaningful expression of the church on earth, I believe in the church functional, the worship of God, the witness to the world, and the work of the kingdom. So if I was summarizing how I'd want to try and express what I believe about the church. I believe in the church as a community called by the relational and redeeming God to be a kingdom and priests. A community, a congregation of people in the world under the rule of Christ who live and work together without social or ethnic distinction. I'd also want to say about the Church that I believe it to be universal, standing greater than any group, claiming exclusively to represent it, and above every nation and culture in which it finds its home. Belonging to all the ages, it defies the passing of the centuries and embraces within its visible and invisible membership both the living and the dead. I believe in the church local, a community of Christians who meet together in a local situation, ordering their communal life according to their understanding of the teaching of the Bible, the leading of the Spirit and the values of their tradition. I believe in the church functional, in its role in the worship of God, the witness to the world and the work of the kingdom. It doesn't take long to say it, but it takes a lifetime to work out.